aren't you going to wrap it for your kids for for the tree? You're not going to. You're not. It's not for the kids. It's for me. Oh my goodness! What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? is up my nerds welcome inside pop culture with fanboy and know-it-all i'm jake i am paul welcome back inside our crazy brains and back to a new tradition it's not even a new tradition anymore it's just a tradition your third year doing this the rubber match the rubber match year three of the pop culture with fanboy and know-it-all fantasy movie season award fantasy award season league that's pretty impressive i almost got it i almost got it cleanly (laughs) you know if we go to year four i think we need to have a better name don't you think you know the problem is at this point it starts to entrench itself as being sort of endearing that nobody can pronounce it yeah and that its little acronym is 27 letters long even the acronym yeah the acronym is rough because there's no vowels yeah. There's one there's two vowels in the whole thing. So it's not even an easy one to pronounce. You got the P C F K I A F M A S L D. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds just like word salad. That sounds That's like f-f-f-missile. alphabet soup. You just right. pull it out in one of your little spoonfuls and that's what it is. In an unusual year that has been 2020. We uh, for, really, you know what? This is an area where the people kind of win, perhaps, because I think it's going. COVID has made these award movies that typically don't get wide releases, you know, or you know, they're not they're not blockbusters dominating the box office in most people's local areas. Now, due to COVID, so many are getting launched on digital streaming services where everybody can see them where everybody can watch them and since there's no batman movies to distract people or james bond or james bond no wonder woman no no star wars what else do they have to do but watch oscar bait films that's right so who knows maybe the entire the the entire movie population will will have its movie watching iq raised who knows yeah i mean that's the upshot here is that everybody's been looking at the dark storm clouds of 2020 but the silver (laughs) lining is we're all lifting our tastes for movies (laughs) out of the gutter people who ate oscar movies might disagree with that but i'm I'm there Um, so, uh, we're calling this the rubber match because in season one, Paul mopped the floor with my cold, lifeless yeah. team. I really uh, did dominate pretty good. I, I, I hate to brag, but yes, yeah. no contest in, in season one, uh, four of Paul's five players on his team outscored my highest scoring team. They, I like my highest scoring team would have been the the fifth man on Paul's team. He he ended up beating me according to our point totals, one hundred and thirty seven to forty six by almost a hundred points. 
And uh, that was a wake up call for me. That was a wake up call for me. And Paul didn't see, Paul kind of wanted to rest on his laurels. Like any good champion is. Yeah, that's fine. You can have the first pick next time. You can just do whatever you want. I didn't even do any research. And the next year it came to bite me on the rear. That's right. And I made in a massive, almost 150 point swing. And ended up beating Paul by 50 points, 150 to 100. Yeah, it was embarrassing. Me, a professional movie reviewer. That's right. Losing to someone who really doesn't know anything about movies. (laughs) So you like to think. Uh, The real Achilles heel for Paul last year was his number one draft pick was A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood which uh, only ended up with five points. It was a bad pick. It was a very, I will admit, it was a very bad pick. But it was a very good movie. Fine, yeah, I mean, really enjoyable film. Yeah. But um, it was, it was, you know, an, it was the reverse situation of the previous year where my best film wouldn't have even, you know, cracked your top four, where your number one pick wouldn't have even cracked my top five. Yeah. It was terrible. It was so. Here we are with the tiebreaker, and unfortunately, Paul has the advantage potentially here. Though based on his first pick from last year, maybe this is an advantage for me. In that, as the loser of last season, he gets to pick first this year. Yes, yes, and we should probably run down a little bit how we do this, right? So, well, we will when we, you know, transition. This has all been set up, you know. Just right, we're we haven't even actually gotten to this segment yet. You're still vamping here. Okay, got it. That's right. Yeah. Um, my my as as like to conclude the vamp after we go and do this longer and longer each each episode. I just get. After we do the draft, before we do the most least important thing, we thought, hey, you know what? The people have access to these Academy Award potentially nominated films. We'll see. So let's go ahead and start watching them and talking about them in a way that we couldn't before. Because, you know, a lot of times these films weren't even available on video. Like half of them would be available on video before the awards would happen. And so you couldn't even watch it till afterwards. Well, now we can watch most of them. And so we're going to start making our way through them. And we decided to start with the trial of the Chicago seven. So we're going to be breaking down that Aaron Sorkin film in between the most least important thing and the pop culture with fanboy and know-it-all fantasy movie award season <laughs> league draft. <laughs> All right, pomp and circumstance. There is none. We're all socially distanced. We're all distanced from one another at great lengths. And the pomp and the circumstance have been retired. An entire city. We're keeping very socially distant from one another. That's right. Even though we're both in each other's offices. It's a weird, it's a weird thing. Yeah. That is that is 2020 for you right there. <laughs> Paul, um, why don't you give us a little breakdown of the 
pop culture with fanboy and know-it-all fantasy movie award season league draft. All right. For those who have forgotten because, you know, they're just trying to memorize the title of the league. Yeah, exactly. It, it really gets very difficult. I just call it sort of the fantasy film draft just to make it a little bit smoother and a little bit easier. Uh, yeah, exactly. The fantasy, the fantasy film draft, it's FFD. Very cool. It'd be great on ESPN. I don't think we're getting a lot of calls on that, but not yet. Next year, maybe. Hey, if this if this pandemic keeps going, they're going to be could. desperate. Exactly. We're going to that deal. So, just to give you a bare bones look, essentially what Jake and I do, and of course you can do this at home. You can pick your own movies and compete with us if you'd like. You can even pick the same movies that Jake and I pick if you want. But Jake and I, we go down the list, and it's essentially like a fantasy football draft. That's right. Only with two people. And only with five quote-unquote players. We pick the five movies that we think are going to make the biggest hay during award season. Um, it's a serpentine draft, so I will draft first, then you will have two picks, and then I will go next. And essentially what we do is we look at the big high points for quote-unquote the award season. Uh, we look at the BAFTAs, we look at uh, the Screen Actors Guild, we look at all of these different categories, the Golden Globes, all of these big high point award type of shows, events, you name it. And we try to pick what ones are going to do well there. Um, for some of the biggest ones, we actually also weight nominations. Um, I think think, Jake, correct me if I'm wrong, Golden Globes, we give a point to uh, each each movie that might get a nomination. Right. So the Golden Globes, the, the Golden Globes, the Screen Actors Guild, and the British Academy Film and Television Awards, or BAFTA, you can, uh, each film can earn one point per nomination. And then three points for the win. Correct. We obviously waited very heavily toward the Oscars, which is sort of the culmination of the entire season. So we actually give three points for the nomination. Um, for Two points for, every, for the nomination. Oh, two points for, for each mm -hmm. Oscar nomination. Yep. And then how many points do we award to the winner? Six per win. Yeah, so a full touchdown. A full right. touchdown is awarded for the yep. Um So essentially that's how we do it. So we will... From here on out, as the awards start rolling out, Jake and I will actually do a running tally to see who's doing well. Um, some years you can have, I don't think we've actually experienced this, but some years you can have films that do really well in some of the early um, awards. They sort of peter off as it gets closer to the Oscars for whatever reason. And so you can have someone come storm from behind to conquer the uh, the actual season. I don't think that we've seen that. Pretty much anybody who's been leading at the beginning has been leaning at the end. But maybe that'll change this year. Yeah, I mean, we saw, um, I'm thinking about for Paul here as I'm looking at some, some past picks. Um, I think one that uh, was a pretty fascinating one to watch was The Favorite back in the 2018, oh, yeah, 2019. Yeah. And as that kind of tromped its way um, through, through the categories and, and really uh, like people had thought it might do pretty well, but it like dominated. It dominated. 
it dominated, especially when you're talking about some of those some of those acting trophies. The other thing that makes this sort of a fun contest to do, Jake, is the fact that you you don't just pick because of how we do this. It's it's on total nominations and total awards, so you can have a movie that you wouldn't necessarily would think would be Oscar bait, like like the Avengers Endgame. Something like that that might be up for a lot of technical categories, you can actually clean up pretty good. Then you can pick a, a movie like The Favorite that won't necessarily do much in some other categories, but the acting categories, it'll have it down. So it, it makes for a sort of an interesting little strategic game that you can play with this particular uh, fantasy film tourney. That's right. So... Without any further ado, Paul, are you ready to be on the clock for the first pick of the 2020-2021 Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All Fantasy Movie Award Season League Draft? <laughs> yes, I am ready. I am ready. I almost... Well, sorry, in the time it took me to say the title, <laughs> I almost your felt... clock expired. <laughs> so you're out of time. You forfeit your pick. We should really institute a clock because... Honestly, I don't know which one I want to use for the first pick. The one, the other weird thing about this year is usually by this time I have seen a handful of these movies because of what I do. I have seen very few of them that I would really be considering. So I'm sort of walking into this a little bit blind, just like you are. And I have no real good idea of what might do well. That may might actually be better as you know, a beautiful day in the neighborhood proved. But I think for my number one, oh, for my <laughs> number one pick, I'm going to go, I'm going to go Nomadland. Nomadland. Yes. Francis McDormand starring vehicle. Exactly. Exactly. What now else? you think she can pull back-to-back -back wins down? You know, I'm not sure. I don't think that she would actually be I would not pick her for best actress, but I have heard a lot about this movie. They're talking about a uh, best picture, best director, best screenplay. They're talking about a lot of awards for this, this thing. It's sort of like a travel movie, I believe. Um, and so I think that it, it could pull down quite a few awards. People who have seen it have been raving about it. And Frances McNorman, she doesn't, she really doesn't appear in anything that isn't nominated for a bunch of Oscars. It doesn't seem like she's always, even if she's not getting nominations herself, although she typically is, she's always part of these juggernaut movies that just, just bulldoze all the way to, to all the statuettes that you can get. Well, there you go. Number one pick in the 2020, 21 fantasy movie award season draft. Paul goes with Nomadland, which uh, was a. I'm glad Paul picked Nomadland because he left my number one pick on the board, uh, and that's why I'm going to come in and slam dunk with my number one pick, Mank. Curse you, curse you, Jake. Mank uh, is not out yet but is fixing to come to Netflix in the first week of December, 2020. And it's uh, going to be following the screenwriter, Herman J. Mankiewicz, who wrote and sort of uh, helped bring to life Orson Welles's Citizen Kane. A little movie that you might've heard about. 
few people may have heard of this film. And not only does this thing uh, have a director, David Fincher, who's got some talent. Um, it's got that whole Hollywood film noir vibe going for it that Hollywood just loves to eat up and helped lead uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to a lot of points for Paul last year. And then you've got an all-star cast with uh, Gary Oldman and Amanda Seyfried and Lily Collins. I don't know if she's an all-star yet, but she could be. This could be her year to become the all-star. Mank, I think, is going to get some production awards as well as acting, directing, screenplay, soundtrack. Like this, this seems to me to be the type of film that can like get noms across the board. It really could be. And this was my sentimental pick. I had heard so much about Nomadland for the last couple of days that I sort of was swayed by that. But I tell you what, the movie that I would rather watch is probably Mank. Yeah. You know, it, it features, it as you outlined, it's all about Citizen Kane, um, has that old Hollywood type of feel to it. And it stars, you know, Gary Oldman is one of my very favorite actors. I think that it could do, sadly, very well for you. And it 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 just steams me to think that you actually picked it instead of, I don't know, first cow. Right. You're waiting for it. Yeah. And of course, this this could end up being something in the vein of a hillbilly elegy, where which was getting a lot of buzz prior to being released and then has been com- pretty roundly panned. Yeah. Yeah. So these are, you never know. This is like drafting that hot, rookie running back or that second year running back. And, you know, they could go down with a blown ACL in that first game. It's really tricky. It is really tricky. You just don't know how these films are going to perform because I have seen it in Hillbilly Elegy. I think that that might get some nominations, but you are right. I think best picture for Hillbilly Elegy is a little bit out of the window right now. All right. Since this is a serpentine draft, it means I am up with the first pick of the second round. And um, I'm going to go with a little strategery here and uh, maybe go a little bit lower on my draft board, but take one that I think, you know, uh, is still, still really solid, but that Paul is more likely to pick than what's higher on my draft board. So with my first, with the first pick of the second round, my second pick of the draft, I'm going with the trial of the Chicago seven. You are such a jerk, such a jerk. That's all I have to say. (laughs) I knew, you know, uh, that this is this is the type of film with that ensemble cast that can, you know, it's a period piece. It feels very culturally relevant with what with uh, its connection to protest and systemic injustice and equality in our country. And Aaron Sorkin, right? The man can write and direct a film with a lot of punch. And surprisingly, and I give a little nod to Paul for noting this to me before I even saw the trial of Chicago 7 a really Oscar-worthy supporting performance by one Sasha Baron Cohen. Sasha Baron Cohen, he does incredible work here. So just to give you some props on your pick, I was actually looking at sort of an Oscar rundown. You know, they were picking the Oscar favorites, that type of thing. The Trial of the Chicago 7, this, this speaks to how strong the cast is. Of the 10 people that they were thinking might have a chance of being nominated for Best Supporting Actor, I think four or five of them came from this one movie. 
You could have, they could not do anything. And if you have two or three people from the trial getting into that one category, you're going to do a little bit better than Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. I mean, you're talking about Sasha Baron Cohen, Eddie Redmayne is, has really made a mark on this. Joseph Gordon-Levitt has done a great job with his role in this. You have Mark Rylance. Even Franklin Jella, who's who plays the uh, the the judge, um, does a pretty fantastic job. So yeah, we'll have much to say about that coming up. But yeah, it's a pretty strong pick. All right, Paul. Oh man, it just makes me so bitter that you would do that. Um, because I I actually think that in terms of like nominations, those may be those may be the biggest winners but let me throw one out there that i think has a really strong possibility of of snagging some good oscar love ma rainey's black bottom interesting i didn't see you going for this one this soon tell me why you know i think that that just from what i've seen there's a lot of really strong buzz for this one um it's based on a play by August Wilson, who actually wrote one of one of the movies that we've talked about before, Fences. Uh, it's the same writer. It really has this nice period feel to it, and it has an incredible cast. It, sh- it stars Viola Davis as Ma Rainey, who is always spectacular in everything she does. Chadwick Boseman, in his last role... Um, has garnered quite a bit of Oscar attention for he might win a a, a, a post death Oscar, which is very unusual. The last one to do that was uh, Heath Ledger, right. so it could be very interesting. Plus, you've got this period feel to it. Um, it feels very timely in its own sort of way, so it could pick off some uh, some good adapted screenplay nominations. Even a Best Picture nom is not out of the question, and some uh, some costume awards might be up for this one too. Because when you look at the pictures, it definitely has its own special style. It could be really cool. Yeah, not a bad pick there. Um, but in the serpentine draft, that means you have an opportunity to do a terrible pick. and really throw yourself you know into the gutter here so paul with the first pick of the third round what what film is coming off the board all right i'm gonna zag a little bit too this is not one that i think you would pick this is but it's one that i am a little hesitant to choose um and yet i think it's gonna do really well i'm gonna go with the father the Father. Is this a movie you have even heard about? Uh, not prior to doing my draft day research, but I have since learned about it. So the Father. And it was on my draft board. Oh, was it? All right. Not not this high. So I think you're reaching <laughs> here, but. The Father stars Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman, two Oscar vets, obviously. Uh, they've they've been very buzzy lately. They both actually snagged noms last year as well. And Olivia Coleman won four um, for the favorites. And it, it's essentially about this this woman who is caring for her aging father who is going through dementia. This feels like it might be one of those issue oriented movies that has a certain sort of appeal. I I don't know why, but I've seen a lot of movies, it seems like that have sort of this this bit of dementia 
uh, Alzheimer's type of, of, of theme to them. And I think that it's, it's weighing a lot on, on film creators' minds for whatever reason. The movies that I have seen that, that feature it have been extraordinarily powerful quite honestly. And and this one is getting the most buzz of them all. I have not seen this movie, obviously, but I think it could be very strong in the acting categories. So we shall see. Yeah, you never know. There was that one a couple of years ago about a sort of an aging tale that was controversial, but got a lot of award season buzz that now I'm forgetting the title of. Do you remember this one? It's like a husband and a wife. and Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that one. I don't remember the name of it, but I do remember what you were talking about. All right. Well, uh, that leaves me for the second pick of the third round. And my strategy paid off. I was really hoping this film would survive Paul's mid-round gauntlet of picks. And it it did and still landed to me here, even though uh, it was um, should have come off. It was higher on my board, even than the trial of the Chicago 7. So with that ado, I am going with and I, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right. But I'm going to go with Minari. Oh, very interesting. Minari. So, you know, is it too soon for another Korean film to really knock out at the awards? I don't think it is. After Parasite cleaned up, I'm going to come back and lean on Minari to help bring this one home for me. It's the story of a Korean family that moves to Arkansas to start a farm in the 1980s. And, um, you know, this one, Lee Isaac Chung directed this. He himself uh, is in Denver. He was born in Denver, Colorado, but he was the son of Korean immigrants. And he grew up on a farm in Arkansas, ended up going to Yale, majoring in ecology. And then, uh, abandoned his plans to go to medical school and now is doing film. And there's a lot, this is to me has a parasite feel to it where, you know, maybe the general audience didn't really hear much about Minari and yet here it comes cleaning up come award season. Yeah, it could be quite interesting actually. And I think one of the things that parasite did last year is it blew the doors wide open for non-American, non-British movies to be thought of as fantastic Oscar caliber films. You know, I think the Parasite, it was considered a slam dunk for for best foreign language movie. Um, it was a surprise to see it land the, the, the biggest prize of the night, for sure. But everybody thought it was really well-deserved. And so I think that because of that, we're going to be seeing a lot more um, foreign language movies that might be able to to make an impact. I don't even know whether Minari is foreign language since it takes place in, in the United States. I don't know whether that's no. the case, but I do think that that's, there's something going on in South Korea. They're making some fantastic movies. No. Um, I think it could be an interesting, and I've heard a lot of buzz about this one as well. I'm yeah. actually really curious about, this is one of the movies that I really would like to see because it looks intriguing. It looks vaguely, I don't know. It looks sweet. Yeah. I don't know if that's true, but it looks really cool. You know, like a sweet family, not a, not necessarily a family movie, but, but a movie about family and about the importance of family and and living in a different sort of environment. And that's, that's the type of movie that I kind of like. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. You're right. I don't, it's not a, a foreign film as far as I'm aware, but it is 
heavily focused on a uh, Korean family. And interestingly enough, two of my five picks in the 2019-2020 season were were based on, um, you know, Asian families. And mm-hmm. because I also picked a farewell. So uh, which ended up outperforming Paul's beautiful day in the neighborhood. So you keep wanting to bring that up. Makes me bitter every time. Every time. All right. Uh, now I start with the first pick of the fourth round myself here. And uh, this is where I start to, I start to wonder, I start to feel unsure about the picks here. What, you know, what is going to be bet? What's one film going to be better than the next film? It's really hard to judge, especially, you know, when we haven't seen most of these films, <sighs> but with that, I am going to go with a movie coming out supposedly on Christmas Day and directed by Regina King, I'm going to go with One Night in Miami. Oh, interesting. So the premise of One Night in Miami is a night where Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown gathered to discuss their roles in the civil rights movement and all of the cultural upheaval of the 1960s. And, um, of course, we know 2020 has been filled with conversations on these topics and um, and cries for justice, not unlike those seen in the 1960s. Certainly a lot of uh, a passion, a lot of work uh, that still needs to be done. And so I think this film could have a lot of resonance. And, um, you know, I'm going to go with One Night in Miami, Regina King. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you say that this is sort of the time when you start to feel a little more uncertain. This is the heart of my draft right here, I think, because we're going to go a little counter programming. As I kind of led, you know, you don't necessarily want to have just just movies that are competing for acting awards and screenplay awards, although the one that I'm about to name may do that anyway, because it's a really good movie. Um but I'm going to go, I'm going to zig a little bit, and I am going to name The Personal History of David Copperfield. The Personal History of David Copperfield. This is a movie that actually was super fun. I have actually seen this movie. Um, very witty, very bright. It's an adaptation, of course, of David Copperfield, the famous Charles Dickens novel. And it sticks pretty close to the novel, but it does it in a very contemporary fashion. Um, and it has some some pretty big, heavy hitters, actually, when it comes to acting. Um, I, I was surprised, actually, how how interesting the cast was. Pretty much everybody who you would think of as a British actress or actor is in this thing. Uh, Peter Capaldi, the old Doctor Who is in it. Um, You have Tilda Swinton, who does a great job as Betsy Trotwood. Hugh Laurie is in it. And Dev Patel sort of heads the whole thing as David Copperfield. It's a very witty production. And I think that it might not only maybe get some outside attention for screenplay, for some acting awards, but I think it's a slam dunk for makeup, for... Um, costume awards. I think it could be a really strong contender in those categories. Yeah, I haven't I haven't seen this one myself, but I have heard you speak of it, and I think it could it could be one of those that snags some of that love on those categories, like you mentioned. Um, I wouldn't I would not 
Although I would be sad since it's on your list and not mine. I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. And, you know, one of the things that I also think about in this particular time, and and I am not judging this on anything. Obviously, this movie has not gotten a ton of Oscar buzz, but I also kind of wonder, we've been through a very difficult election season. We're in the midst of COVID. We've had these, we've, we feel heavy. We feel tight. We feel... Um, Maybe it's time for a movie that just makes you feel good. And The Personal History of David Copperfield is one of those movies that makes you feel good. It's fun. It's light. You can watch it with the whole family. And it doesn't insult your intelligence. And I think that that might make for some attention getting this time of year. All right. Paul, with your final pick, where are you going to go here? This is really tricky. This is very, very tricky. Um, I am debating between like about five movies, even as I sit here. I I think that Borat 2, oddly enough, has some energy behind it. Pieces of a woman I've heard, heard some great, great buzz about. Um, but you know what I think I'm going to do? I think I'm going to go for, as I often do, go for a movie that I just really want to succeed, even though I haven't seen it. I'm going to go with, oh, man, this is so tricky. You know what? I'm going to go with Wolf Walkers. What? Wolf Walkers. So Wolf Walkers is an animated movie that is going to be coming out on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, it is getting some tremendous buzz, uh, and I think that it might actually knock Soul off. Soul is the big contender from Pixar this year. Uh-huh. Um, so, and it's been getting some some tremendous buzz as well. Soul has, uh, but I think the Wolf Walkers may be coming in with a little bit of a stronger hand this this year. Uh, it is hampered by its platform, Apple TV Plus. When you're looking at the primary streaming platforms, it's probably the least accessible and probably the least well known. Uh, but it looks really compelling, and I've heard some great things about this movie. So uh, it could it could sink my entire draft, honestly. But I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Wolfwalkers. I mean, I think it, I, I I get what you're trying to do here, but I just don't see it getting that enough categories. You know, well, and that is the thing. That is the thing, isn't it? But when you look at some of the other contenders that we'd be looking at news of the world hillbilly elegy greyhound emma first cow pieces of a woman i think pieces of a woman definitely has a good chance and i shouldn't be telling you this because now you're going to snag it but i do think that it has a good chance of being of getting nominated in more categories but i i always kind of think with the fifth pick of my draft this is sort of the space in the draft that i want a team that I really feel passionate about, that I really feel like I can, I, this is a fun team for me. You know, these, these, these fantasy drafts of any type, they're all about having fun and you want to have someone who you can have, you know, you want to have people on your team that are kind of fun. And I think Wolf Walkers might be kind of fun. There you go. Well, that's left me torn between, two films for my last pick, the last pick of the draft because man, I can see, I can see potential both ways here. 
Uh, one is a Spike Lee joint. I don't mind saying this since Paul can't snag either of these now. And that is uh, a film that came out early in the year on Netflix uh, called The Five Bloods. Yep. Yep. Directed by Spike Lee. It also has um, Chadwick Boseman, uh, though not his last released role since Ma Rainey came out after that. Uh, a lot of the people have been talking about Delroy Lindo in his role in his role in the five bloods as being Oscar worthy and having a great supporting cast. And do you get um, some screenplay nods here as well as, um, you know, a couple of those production type um, nominations. Uh, the other one that I'm looking at is not out yet, but is directed by none other than George Clooney and is set to land on Netflix right around Christmas, the Christmas break. And it's called the midnight sky which is adapted from a book. Um, so you've got the adapted screenplay up for grabs there. Um, you know, some looks at supporting actor and actress, visuals, um, cinematography, things like that. Uh, so, you know, it, my, my, what we have here is I feel like to five bloods is probably the strong going to be the ultimately the stronger pick. However, it came out really early in 2020. Whereas the Midnight Sky is going to be dropping later um, in the cycle, and you know recency bias is a real thing. However, with the Oscars not really happening until April, and films being released all the way through February twenty one, counting, do is the you know are both going to suffer? Like I, it should, what do I do here? What do I do here, guys? What do I do here? I am going to go. You know what? Spike Lee did me well. Um, or wait, no. Spike Lee did Paul well a couple of years ago. Black Klansman. The Black Klansman. That was a great movie. I'm going to go with The Five Bloods here. Ooh, The Five Bloods. Yeah, you know, it, it is going to be interesting because honestly, as I was doing uh, doing my own research for this, the the five bloods kept coming up and i thought man isn't that a pretty old movie right it's a pretty old movie it feels like it <laughs> in the in this eternally long year that it's been yes it feels very old but but i've heard some good things about it and you can never count out spike lee right he is a darn fine movie maker whatever you think about his politics whatever you think about whatever he basketball tape movie huh his basketball taste. Exactly. Oh, what is up with the Knicks? I hate the Knicks. But <laughs> but he really is a, a, an incredible filmmaker. So um, you can't count him out. So no. Jake, as, as we close this section, can I propose a quick rule change? One of the things that we've never done. After the draft? Yeah, after the draft. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But see, this is this is his fitting, right? In fantasy football, typically you have a chance to pick up teams, like drop underperforming players, pick up other ones if they get injured, you can move past them. I am suggesting that maybe we can actually pick up somebody who might outperform one of the groups on or one of the films on our list as a matter of fact i might be inclined to do that right now all right so how are you right based on what i'm having pickers regret i yeah. think i made a wrong choice and now i want to pick up another one that's that's undrafted in the free agent pool 
Yeah, in the free agent pool. Um, okay, I'm. I'm. This is an interesting idea. What What would you propose as the guardrails? You have one film that you can swap out in the entire off season. Do you have more than that? Is it I one say, a month? Is it? I would say you can switch out. Let's let's make it as many as two. A total of two. Yes, a total of two. Uh, so, and that can be made. At any time, any wit, like, uh, or like before a certain date, because at some point, you know, awards are going to start rolling in. Do we have to have made these swaps before the end of November? I, I actually think that you can, well, see, when you're talking about fantasy football, you can make them during the course of the season. If you want to drop um, Tom Brady because he's underperforming, you can drop him and pick up you know, whoever, Josh Allen. So if you wanted to. So I I don't necessarily think that you should, although here's the thing. I think that we should make a limit where if you're going to make a change, you have to do it by the end of January. Okay, so you have to have made the change by the end of January. Correct. Now, do we know, I know the Academy, this is where I uh, I didn't anticipate this change, so I didn't do my research quite as well as I would have otherwise. Have the SAG and BAFTA and Golden Globes also been propo- uh, postponed, or would it be possible that you're picking up a film in January that's already won points at those award shows, and would you then forfeit the points that they've already scored or would you be picking up the points that they've already scored Ooh, that's a good question what do you think jake what would make the most sense for you so yes the the screen actors guild has been postponed as well it's going to be march 14th okay Um, let's see about the bafta that's april 11th so we have an extended awards season here to work and globes did you say let's see about the globes i would imagine that they are a little bit later as well See, this is unpredictable, unpredictable podcasting right here. Certainly. February 28th, 2021. So they're, okay. they're in the spot that uh, usually the Oscars sort of hold. So I think that we're pretty good if we wanted to do that. All right. So I say yes. If uh, you get two total swaps that can be made and um, – And I do – I do think you lose the points. I think you, because we're not doing it on, on like when you're doing fantasy football, you're doing week by week, right? Right. It seems that when you're doing a season long stretch, yes. If you drop somebody, you lose their points. Or if you pick up somebody and let's say the New York film critics has already been announced, you don't get those old points, correct? You only get what happens after you've made the pick. Yeah, let's go with that. Let's right. go with that. So you have a total of two potential free agency pickups. Any points that were uh, held by either team prior by the team you're dropping or the team you're picking up prior to the transaction happening will not count towards your total score. Only the points that happen on while the team is on your roster, as long as that team has maintained a spot on your roster through the end of the season. Correct. All right. <laughs> Leave it to us and, to complicate something that was already hugely complicated. But. And with that, did you say you're already going to make 
I am going to make are... a change. Um, All right. Switching out Wolf Walkers with Tenet. Wolf Walkers has been dropped and Tenet has been added. I'm putting an asterisk on the spreadsheet to indicate that this was a free agency move and was your first free agency move. Your second will be marked with two asterisks. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yes, I'd burned one pickup already. Wow. I'm thinking Tenet. You know, it wasn't, I know that not a lot of people love that movie, but I'm thinking when you talk about the dearth of movies that have any sort of special effects in them this year, Tenet might kind of dominate. It could. I, uh, I have to say, I thought about it for a brief second, and then I remembered how in the first season I went out on a limb and picked a film that hadn't come out yet. At least in this case, you've seen it. But uh, I picked Mortal Engines <laughs> back in season one because I thought it could do the same thing. I thought, you know, adapted screenplay and special effects and cinematography and costumes and nope. I <laughs> uh, got precisely zero points for that one. Zero points. So far, the worst pick in any of our season's history. Let's hope that that holds true for this one as well. Well, there you have it. The picks and the first free agency move are in the books. Paul, you've got Nomadland, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, The Father, The Personal History of David Copperfield, and Tenet on your roster. For me, I've got Mank, The Trial of the Chicago 7, Minari, One Night in Miami, and The Five Bloods. Yep, that sounds just about right. I, I do have to say your list feels my list feels fairly populist compared to yours. Really? I mean, outside of uh, your first, uh, you know what? Really, just your last two feel populist. Yeah, the yeah. First three are are appropriately snobby. <laughs> uh, well, I guess it fits fanboy and know it all, right? That's right. And uh, speaking of that, it's time for us to begin our dive into our exploration of these award show contenders with Netflix's The Trial of the Chicago 7. The Trial of the Chicago 7 is not a uh, baseball film with two outfielders jettisoned for higher scoring games as should totally happen in the MLB to spice things up. You know what, Paul, real quick, the game of baseball, I enjoyed playing it. I was good at it, but it's overrated. It's terrible to watch in professional baseball is no fun. And the unwritten rules are the worst. And there's not enough scoring or action. And so, you know what? The Chicago 7 should be a baseball film in the future once we get rid of two outfielders. You know, once again, Jake, you are completely and utterly wrong. And can we just stop with calling it America's favorite pastime? Or Okay, so here's – I'm going to speak up for baseball because since you went on this rabbit trail, now I feel like I have to speak up. It is, granted, not the most exciting of sports. I am definitely more of a football guy, but when it comes to actually watching it in person, uh, nothing beats a baseball game. 
fun to go to a game in person. I'll give you that. Sit there in the summer sunshine, you get a hot dog. You can, <laughs> the odd thing about, about seeing a game in person is it really, the, the actual lulls in play work toward its advantage. You can get up, you can get your hot dog. You can talk with the people who are sitting with you. You can still follow all of the action. It's great. Yeah. And if you happen to miss the one play that happens every 27 games, <laughs> the highlight will be just as good. Man, oh man. Did you see that one play in the World Series? You know what I'm talking about. No, I didn't watch the World Series. Oh my god. Even when the Chicago Cubs were in the la- about to clinch their first World Series in a century, I could only stomach the last two innings. <laughs> Just to say I did. That's really pitiful. I think that just speaks to your lack of ability to concentrate on anything. And I was a baseballer. I mean, there's a lot of people that were upset with me for quitting baseball in favor of football. They thought that I was, uh, I'm very much of a Mike Trout style of baseball player. I'm stocky, powerful in the batter's box, and a surprisingly fast and uh, ground outfield chewing outfielder. So... A lot of people, a lot of people thought I could have gone pretty far in baseball, Paul. Not to toot my own horn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure you could have gone really far in baseball, Jake. I am sure. <laughs> the trial of the Chicago Seven has precisely zero to do with baseball. Nothing and to do with baseball. There's everything nothing. to do with the Vietnam War, and not wanting anything to do with the Vietnam War. There you go. How about that for a summary? (laughs) You really excel at those. So (laughs) essentially what we have here, uh, the the trial of the Chicago 7 is, of course, based on a real true story. Back in 1968, uh, the Democratic National Convention in Chicago uh, was just about to pick uh, its candidate, who was Hubert Humphrey? Hubert. Hubes. So uh, there were a lot of people who were very angry about the Vietnam War, obviously, and they came to Chicago to protest the Vietnam War. Um, Included amongst them was sort of like all these heavy hitters of war protesters. Abby Hoffman was there. Rennie Davis was there. Jerry Rubin was there. Tom Hayden was there. You might not know anybody but Abby Hoffman. These were big deals. You completely forgot David Dellinger. David Dellinger. I wasn't going to forget David Dellinger. He was the uh, he was the Boy Scout leader of Family Man, who has always been the strong pacifist, right? That's so, right. Yeah, you have all these powerful people in the anti-war movement who who gather in Chicago to lead people in protests, theoretically peaceful protests. Although, as we see in the movie, um, not. Everybody was completely committed to having peaceful protests. If uh, if things got a little out of hand, they would not have minded for one reason or another. Things did get out of hand. There were some riots. There was some violence. And so once the current president, who the president at the time was Lyndon Bain Johnson, he left office, replaced by Richard Nixon, who really wanted to prove his law and order bona fides. And so he brought some of these leaders uh, to trial. And it was the Chicago Eight at the time. They actually lumped in um, the leader of the uh, of the Black Panthers at the time. Um, 
who really was just there in Chicago for four hours, but they put him in there anyway, just to get sort of like this whole anti-war crew together that they could, that the Nixon administration could prove their pro, uh, pro law and order bona fides for. And so yeah. sort of, but, under, uh, essentially, the as, as some have said, a political trial, a political trial. Um, this movie definitely would suggest that it was a political trial. As you mentioned, Aaron Sorkin directs this. He is known as a very thoughtfully progressive voice in Hollywood, I would say. It would be fair to say. Um, He did The West Wing. He did The Newsroom. He's also a fantastic screenplay writer. He has a really great way with dialogue. Um, And so you see the trial essentially coming from his point of view. It's a, it's an interesting movie as I think you would agree. Yeah. I uh, have to admit, I was not familiar with the Chicago seven or eight, whichever, whichever part of the trial you happen to jump in at, since it did eventually get whittled down to seven. Uh, it was not something that was on my historical radar. Surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. It happened 20 years before you were born. Happened 20 years before I was born, and apparently the school curriculum I had growing up wasn't as progressive as these <laughs> men were. <laughs> Weird how all this progressive history was just not present in all the conservative textbooks I had growing up. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> beyond that. Uh, so I had to do some reading up on the trial of the Chicago 7 to see – what what happened? Where does this film kind of land on this? And as I read about this, um, you know, I saw that Sorkin talked a lot about the fact that he wasn't trying to go like a straight, right? you know, right. Tr- like telling of the history. He talked about painting with broad brushes and making a really good movie that captured the heart of this. Um, and I, I, at be, this being a courtroom drama, my thought was this film based on what I'm reading about what actually happened and how the film translates it feels like a really well done courtroom drawing, right? Uh, where courtroom drawings are notorious for not being particularly exact in their depiction of what's happening due to the constraints on courtroom artists, that make it difficult to sketch really like exact uh, details, but trying to capture the emotion and the setting and evoking the reality of what was happening, happening through storytelling and art. And you know what? Sorkin nailed it in my opinion, in that regard, this was dare I say, except for parts, a fun movie to watch. It was very entertaining. I think it was very entertaining. And and you owe a lot of that to Sorkin's way with dialogue. He gives uh, these people really interesting things to say. Um, and as we've already talked about in our first segment, you have some fantastic acting performances that are a part of this too. Sasha Baron Cohen, he stole this movie. Clearly, it's really focused in on. But but that that battle between he he plays Abby Hoffman, who's the leading one of the founding members of the Youth International Party, which was known as the Yippies. They're sort of this prototypical hippie group. Everything positive and negative that you can think about the hippies were movement was essentially manifested in Abby Hoffman. 
And that is contrasted by who I think is really the Sorkin character in this, played by Eddie Redmayne, um, Tom Hayden. He's a very thoughtful, clean-cut anti-war protester who thinks that Abby Hoffman is just this joke and is doing harm to the anti-war movement. Um, you have that sort of battle, not really between the... the it, it really isn't even a trial necessarily at least the main drama isn't between the defendants, the, the Chicago seven and the government. It's almost as much between Abby Hoffman and Tom Hayden mm. um, and, and their different ways of viewing the anti-war movement. And, and you can almost hear Sorkin piping his own thoughts through Tom Hayden's character as he talks about that. Um, it's a really compelling movie. It's a fun movie, as you say. Um, it does have a point of view. When you talk about sort of those broad brush brush strokes that you're that 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 Sorkin makes, you can tell that he's he's very very um, sympathetic toward the defendants and some of the historical things that happened uh, at that trial are sort of washed away. Some of the things that that you might give a, a a, a viewer in the middle of the road a little bit of pause when the the defense attorney puts the the north vietnamese flag on the on the courtroom table that's that's probably a little bit provocative and, and wouldn't necessarily fly with everybody um but, but it, you know it flies with me <laughs> but it does really capture i think the essence of that trial and what was really at stake and all the competing um, worldviews that are going on with this. I think that it, it really works well as a drama. Yeah. And ends up being a really prescient film. Of course, certainly it was made in the context of our modern world. And so Sorkin can't is intentionally looking at, I think, parallels in Absolutely. sort of the philosophy of um, that's on trial in this film and, and the philosophy that's at odds within itself. And as people struggle with what is, what does it mean to be an activist? What does it mean to have this point of view to advocate for it? Well, what are the lines? How do we, how do we, when, when and where do we move from advocating for that, which we care about to, putting ourselves forward in our own egos and ideas and wanting validation. And there's a whole lot in there to wrestle with that we've been wrestling with as a culture. And what's, what's darkly humorous to me is the fact that we've forgotten all of this so quickly, even though we're talking about a film that happened or a story that happened 50 years ago, at the same time, it's not that long ago. Right. Right. That this all went down, and the the people that were young adults at the time are still with us, still an active and contributing part of society. Heck, two of them are the last. Two of them, you know, maybe weren't key players at this point in time. But if you look at just the age of our current president and our president elect, they would have been young adults, you know, and That's in exactly. a, very much a part of this time. And so many seem to have forgotten the turmoil or did we forget or did we just not pay attention to it the first time? That was something that struck me as I was watching this. And as I've kind of looked back through the annals of American history and the turmoil and the division and the stark divide, we're like, Oh, we've, we are certainly divided now, 
but we've been really divided before and not that long ago. Right, right, exactly. I think that, that this brings a little bit of context to this period of turmoil that we're dealing with now. Um, you can see that they had a lot of work to do back then. We have a lot of work to do now. There are there are a lot of things that, that sort of have remained um, frustratingly um, static. But you can also see, I think, one of the things that I found really interesting about this movie is you can see um, some of the principled players on both sides. You know, I, I think that... that when I, I look at some of the people who we see on trial, you have some very unlikely characters that take shape here. And I think that, that one of the people who you called out at the very beginning, um, David Gellinger, he is not a person who you would picture being an anti-war activist. He's, he's this father. He's this husband. He's a literal Boy Scout leader. And he has always just really believed that that pacifism was the way that there's always a peaceful resolution to whatever ails us. Um, he finds that challenged during the course of this movie, which I found to be one of the more interesting parts of, of the film, to be honest with you. On the other side, you, you have uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, Richard Schultz. He's the federal prosecutor, does a fantastic job as the federal prosecutor, very professional, very good at his job. And yet he doesn't want to prosecute the case because he can't necessarily figure out what laws these people have actually broken beyond um, beyond trespassing laws. So you have a lot of really interesting themes that are going through this movie that, that, the, that I think Sorkin brings to light well. Um, it might not be, as he fully admits, history as history wrote it but man it does bring context and it does make it a powerful story and it makes you want to pay more attention to this time in history that reflects eerily our own yeah though i'll say to the joseph gordon levitt point that was the one probably the one of the main parts if not the main part of the film that left me wanting um because i felt like there was a lot of potential in that character uh, wasn't wanting because of what Levitt did, right. but wanting because of what was actually in the film was not nearly enough to explore, I think, the nuance that would have helped make this film feel that much more balanced and accessible. Yeah. In that um, what with those broad brushstrokes, almost all of the characters outside of Joseph Gordon-Levitt who are on the other side of Sorkin or of the Seven. Right, right, right. They are... They're uh, very, they're bordering on caricatures of, you know, just like these are the least, you know, just gross, uh, nasty individuals, no character, no honor, nothing. Like there's, he doesn't really give much development to show who these people are. And I get that from a storytelling perspective. And I get that we were dealing with big, bold characters like Abby Hoffman on the other side as well. But it really seemed like at first the way the movie really opened on Joseph Gordon-Levitt's Schultz character right. that we were going to get. And, and he admitted in, up front that he as a person disagreed with the Chicago seven and was, you know, not a progressive individual. I thought they were going to wrestle a lot more with that middle ground um, yeah. of what to do when you're 
own personal ideas or intention with the democratic institutions. And you got glimpses of it, but the movie almost totally abandoned Schultz's perspective outside of little glimpses here or there where he was, you could, they, the camera would pan to him being uncomfortable with a particular thing. Yeah. Instead of really developing his discomfort and saying, I disagree with these individuals. And yet I see democratic institutions being, uh, being abused here and I'm not okay with that. that. And maybe that doesn't fit with real life. I don't know enough about this character in real life, but from a storytelling perspective, that would have helped this movie feel a little more balanced. I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. And I, I think it goes back to Sorkin's point of view. I mean, he is coming in not not as an unbiased witness, but as someone who is actually sitting at the defendant's table with these seven defendants. You know, he wants to tell their story. And the fact that he brought a Richard Schultz type of character into the mix, I appreciated that because yeah. it's probably the way I tend to lean just just personally i i like law and order i think that that the institutions that we have in our government are are good and and healthy and all that kind of stuff so um i think that that in some ways i would have liked to have seen that character fleshed out more because i also agreed with some of his concerns as well um it was not done in this movie and i think that it's a detriment to this movie but because the character development was so rich around that defense table, I think that it mitigated those concerns for me. Again, I think that Hoffman-Hayden clash was the heart of this this whole movie for me. I think that that was the crux. And it was really compelling theater. For a, a film that essentially takes place in a courtroom with a few flashbacks here and there, it was very riveting. Yeah. And theater is an uh, appropriate term. It does have some very stage-like qualities in the ethos of the film. And and I mean that in a good way. I mean, I thought that the tone Sorkin brought was really good. And, and you're right. The fact that it didn't explore more in the Schultz character, ooh, excuse me, was a bummer, but it doesn't tank the film or sink it. It's still really, really watchable. And the broad brushstrokes that are there are thought provoking. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I, and also for just to preempt the content caveat with Paul Acey, it <laughs> felt like a really relatively light R rated film. Yes. I would agree with that. You have you have some cursing. You have definitely some allusions to sexual activity. You have some allusions to drug activity because it's the 60s, right? But it is relatively clean. That doesn't mean that it's necessarily for kids. And no, I no, certainly not. <laughs> I don't think the epitome of mature themes. <laughs> but I think in terms of what you typically see from R-rated movies, this... Sorkin was wanting the story to stand on its own. It's not trying to shock. It's not trying to stuff in a lot of salacious content. It wants to tell a story. And that story is very, very compelling. Yeah, there you have it. The Trial of the Chicago 7 is available on Netflix. If you happen to be a Netflix subscriber, it does have some language, some images of violence, a little bit of blood involved with that violence. Um, and like I said, mature themes, it's dealing with war and drugs and, you know, some pretty heavy stuff. 
But you know what? This is a watchable film. Like this is the type of movie that you could could win an Oscar and the snobs can feel good and the people can feel good. <laughs> Maybe that makes me a snob. Maybe that's what a snob would say. But there, there you have it. The trial of Chicago seven, but for us now it's time for the most least important thing. Here we are. It's the most least important thing. The way we love to wrap up every single little show of ours. Taking our microscopes and wielding them like lightsabers against mountains. And uh, taking some of that chia seed, putting it in the molehills, turning them into mossy mountains. Yes, that's exactly what we do on this segment, Jake. It's eerie how accurate I am (laughs) when I describe these things. I just try to picture slashing at a mountain with a lightsaber. Lightsabers are really cool, but... Lightsaber microscopes. Anyway. All right, Paul, what do you got for us today? So one of the things that we've talked about on this very episode is just what a weird year it's been for movie watching, right? Yep. You can't go into theaters. A lot of the blockbusters are not coming out at all. So, and, and as a movie reviewer, it's really hard to determine what people are even watching. Just found out there is a source, at least a poll done, on what people have actually watched this year on the streaming services. Oh. And it's actually pretty interesting. I will say that the uh, that number eight is the movie that we have just talked about. Well, look at that. The Chicago 7 is the eighth most watched movie on a streaming services service during the coronavirus era. So that's pretty interesting. We also have a lot of movies that we've talked about Right above that is The Old Guard, which we had in a previous episode. Project Power is number 12. We've talked about that as well. Uh, it really says that we are doing something right with this. And at number one, of course, is Hamilton. Hamilton uh, movie, number one. You know what that does? That kind of, that does actually surprise me a little bit. It was huge. I tell you I what. Was, I thought you were going to say Eurovision. Eurovision didn't even make the list, believe me. Come on. Kid you not. Eurovision did not make the list, but Hamilton was huge. And they they had actually done some, uh, Disney had released some stats on on what exactly Hamilton meant for them. And I think that their their app was downloaded something like 500,000 times the week that Hamilton came out. It was Mm. like an increase of 30%. So you know that a lot of people were tuning in for Hamilton. Yeah. That's crazy. Huh. I mean, that's, that is a lot of draw for a musical. Yeah, it really is. So here's, here's just the top five. I'll give you the top five. Here's a movie that I actually nixed that you wanted to do, you know, wink, Mm -hmm. wink, nudge, nudge. Borat 2, subsequent movie film was number two on the list. That's the second Sasha Barra Cohen moving on this, on this top 10 list. Well, tune in next time, folks. (laughs) Number three was my spy on Amazon prime. Number four was extraction on Netflix. Did you see that? Oh, is that the, the Hemsworth one? Yeah, exactly. exactly. That was like early quarantine. Yeah. 
early quarantine. It was released yeah. in April. Yep. And number five, believe it or not, was Phineas and Ferb the movie, Candace Against the Universe. I've seen that one. That was a good that was a good film. I thought you might have seen that one. Have you not? Have you wait, you're still not on the Phineas and Ferb train, right? I have never seen a single episode oh, of Phineas my and Ferb. Goodness. Not only are you a movie reviewer, you're a TV reviewer, and you have not seen the show that will define the childhoods of most <laughs> Gen Z, Gen A children. Goodness gracious. I know. It's wrong. Wrong. Well, speaking of – no, I don't, I don't have a segue there. Um, <laughs> I was going to say like speaking of quarantine stuff, you know, people have been playing video games in quarantine, right? They have been. And <laughs> – the PlayStation Five and the place and the Xbox Series X landing in holiday 2020 to try to take advantage of all of the video gaming that's being done while people are locked in their homes for months on end. And uh, my most least important thing is twofold in that regard. One is the fact that Paul, have you uh, have you tried to get either of these consoles? Not yet, not yet. Yeah, I mean, you're. I figured not since you're still organizing books in Skyrim on your PlayStation One. But... Organizing my library in Skyrim first, and then maybe we'll dive into that. Yeah. So the asking price, the actual selling price for the PlayStation Five and the Xbox Series X is four hundred and ninety nine dollars. We're going to call it an even five hundred. Exactly. Not a not a small price tag, but you know. For the machine that it is, the computing power present in these things, not not entirely unreasonable. However, both Sony and Microsoft decided that they weren't going to be selling these consoles in stores this holiday season. They said online only. We're only going to let people sell them online. And what that has amounted to is basically a bunch of robots buying all these consoles for people and then the people behind these robots reselling them for insane amounts on the secondhand market. There are eBay resellers asking up to $32,000 what? What? for the PlayStation 5 on eBay and up to $8,000 for the Xbox Series X on eBay. Now, is anybody going to pay $32,000 for a PlayStation on eBay? I doubt it. But they are being sold for two to three to ten x the sticker price on eBay right now, as normal people are struggling to even be able to check out at Walmart. That is wrong. That is just completely wrong. Yeah, very sad. Very sad. But there is a positive spin here, and that brings us to the second part of my most least important thing, and that is the fact that my wife managed to beat the robots and snag a PlayStation 5 pre-order on launch day for the PlayStation 5. Wow. That is amazing. That's like getting a Cabbage Patch Kid during the <laughs> the teeth of the Cabbage Patch Kid phenomenon. That's, a, that's incredible. It's really incredible. It was Thursday morning on launch day, November 12th, and she was in the middle of her political science class. <laughs> And she managed to snag the Miles Morales Spider-Man PlayStation 5 bundle from Costco Wow! in, in the middle of that class. And she was fighting bots and the site, like just going like a snail the whole time. Wow. 
You married well. I married well, guys. Man. So it, I don't have it yet. It's, you know, I haven't even got, I've gotten order confirmation, but we haven't gotten shipping confirmation. So who knows when I'll actually be playing it. It could still be 2021, but. Aren't you going to wrap it for your kids for, for the tree? You're not going to, you're not. It's gonna, not for the kids. It's for me. Oh my goodness. What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? They get to enjoy my Christmas present. <laughs> actually, technically it's my birthday present because I wanted to pre-order it back in my birthday month, but missed that window because of the bots. So really it's a late birthday present for me. From is that your excuse? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. No, they, it's for me. It's not, I'm not wrapping it for the kids. So uh, there you go. Yeah. I, I thought that was a nifty little thing. I got a, a PlayStation 5. All you guys should be jealous. <laughs> I'm actually kind of jealous. I'm, I have to say, I would really like to have a PlayStation 5. So maybe what you could do, if you felt really nice, you could just send it on over to, uh, to your favorite podcast partner. That's right. You know what? I'll even give you a deal on it. $31,999. <laughs> Save yourself that dollar and the shipping cost on that thirty two grand model on eBay. How about that for a deal? Free shipping. And the dollar off. So great. Thank you so much, Jake. There you have it. That's about it for this episode of Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. As always, if you want to come harass us on Twitter or say nice things, I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. But until next time, when we definitely do but don't talk about Borat subsequent movie film. (laughs) I'll catch you on the flip side. Bye.